This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post the podcast every Sunday, subscribe, and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is Cal Thomas, author of the book America's Expiration Date, The Fall of Empires and Superpowers, and the Future of the United States. He's interviewed by author and CNN contributor Amanda Carpenter. The book is America's Expiration Date, and you say, based on the findings of soldier scholar Sir John Gloves, that great empires only last about 250 years, which means America's time could be up on July 4th, 2026. Really? Well, well, I'm not a prophet or the son of one, Amanda, but... The only thing we learn from history, as we have heard the cliché, is that we learn nothing from history. And this is an exploration, this book, of eight empires and great nations. The average length is 250 years. Some lasted longer, like the Roman Empire, but all followed the same pattern to decline. And among the characteristics that contributed to those declines were massive national debt. The United States is at $23 trillion. And growing Just the interest on it alone is greater than the gross domestic product of some nations. I liked President Trump's State of the Union speech the other night, except for one thing. He didn't talk about cutting a single government program or even the rate of increase in spending. This is the only nonpartisan thing that happens in this (laughs) town is spending. You can always get agreement on more. A second contribution to the decline of great nations and superpowers and empires is uncontrolled immigration without assimilation. We want people to come to America, but we want them to come legally and in an orderly fashion and then to be assimilated like immigrants of the past and become fully American, not hyphenated Americans as we have too often today. Then there's a loss of a moral sense, also contributing to the decline of great nations. In America today, as Cole Porter wrote in a satirical song in the 1930s, anything goes. And if you say stop or this is too far, you're immediately denounced as a bigot or one of many phobes. So all of this is not a prophetic book. I'm not wearing a sandwich board that says the end is near and parading around in the streets of Washington. (laughs) But I am saying... That while America is a great nation, there are certain seeds that are being sown for our destruction, and we have to renew the values that the greatest generation that we've been living off of by inertia for about the last 60 or 70 years fought and died for. Mm. And to that point, I mean, you do say America's in peril because we've lost our sense of right and wrong Mm. and no longer submit to a higher authority than our own experiences. Mm. But... You know, when I look around the country, I see most people mostly trying to do the right thing. Mm. So where specifically do you see society going wrong? Well, again, I think we are tolerating virtually everything now. Uh, You take a look at uh, the value of human life, and not just abortion, though we've had 60 million of them since Roe versus Wade. But there are other challenges now. In Chicago, in Baltimore, in, in major cities... There are 10, 15, 20 or more shootings every weekend, so many now that it hardly even makes the news. This is how cheap life has become in America. People getting shot and killed because drive-by shootings, uh, somebody dissed me, uh, I wanted the leather jacket or the uh, expensive shoes. And now we're seeing uh, in the debate over health care, and we saw it during uh, the Clinton administration when... uh, 
uh, President Clinton put Hillary, his wife, in charge of reforming health care in America, called Hillary Care then. Uh, the pressure to save money is going to be so great that once you've devalued human life at one end, mm. the pressure to devalue it at the other end and in between, if you're too old, according to the government, if you're not contributing enough in your taxes, if you're taking more than you're getting, it'll start at the extremes. Things always do. But once the precedent is set, like doctor-assisted suicide in some states, uh, particularly on the West Coast, then it's a very, very slow step to the next step. One of the things I mentioned in the book also is a poll of millennials and a loss of a sense of God or the transcendent also contributes to the decline of nations and superpowers. You've got to have a reason for living on this earth besides getting up, going to work, making money and buying stuff. Mm -hmm. There's got to be more to life than that. But 20% of millennials, according to the polls, uh, have no religious affiliation at all. They answer none when asked by the pollsters. And I think that's a disturbing trend, whether you happen to be religious or not. Now, a lot of conservatives, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, say they believe in American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. Is that a little foolish? Well, America is unique among nations, but there's no uh, lifetime guarantee on it. And as I argue in the book, um, a lot of these other places, the Roman Empire, for example, the Eternal City. You go to the Eternal City, now it's in ruins. They thought they were going to be around forever. But they follow the same pattern as these other nations. Overextension, military mm -hmm. experimentation. One of the other things that contributes to a nation's decline is uh, military overreach. George McGovern, the 1972 Democratic presidential candidate, uh, senator from uh, South Dakota, friend of mine, said during the Vietnam War, we cannot be the policemen of the world. It's true. Mm. Now, to his great credit, President Trump has been uh, um, jawboning uh, not only our NATO allies, but others who have benefited for decades from the American nuclear umbrella, especially in Europe, to mm. pony up and pay more yeah. and to provide more troops in their own defense. And I think that's a very good thing. So he is uh, certainly on the right path on that issue. Now, in your book, you go through eight... <clears throat> different empires. Yeah. I think some people may find it tough to draw the parallels between, say, the Ottoman Empire and what mm -hmm. the sultans did and what yeah. Americans are doing. But mm -hmm. what do you see that is similar? Well, human nature yeah. never changes. You can put people in a toga, a dress, a suit, but you can't change their human nature. Greed, envy, entitlement, uh, sexual pleasure, military overreach, what mm -hmm. some people have called uh, the seven deadly sins. Uh, you can't change human nature. And so the point of the book in, in, in looking at the history of these various empires and superpowers is to say, okay, you had sultans, you had emperors, you had all of these other titles and people dressing differently and the rest, but they all suffered from the same internal dysfunction. Hmm. And if we don't learn from them, this is, by the way, this is, this is why a sense of the transcendent and being accountable uh, to God is, uh, is important for the uh, uh, extension and life of, of any nation. Mm -hmm. You also go through, and it's really fascinating, you, you say that there's cycles that mm. these empires go through and mm -hmm. you compare it to how America is similar. And the thesis is, is right now we're in a cycle of decadence. Yes. What does that mean exactly? Well, the book and how is, do you know we're there? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, the, the book is based on an essay by the late British diplomat Sir John Glubb, as you mentioned. And uh, the final stage of collapse, you know, Lincoln talked about this. Lincoln said uh, if America is, uh, is to fail, 
it will fail from within before it is ever mm-hmm. conquered from without. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, who I've reprinted his uh, Harvard and uh, Templeton Prize speech in the book, he he uh, he was asked repeatedly, "How did?" And can we refresh the listeners on who that yeah, is exactly? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer, the Gulag Archipelago, mm-hmm. and so many others, uh, was a, a prisoner in the Soviet Union, and uh, he was finally released, and he came to America to warn America, as I'm trying to do in this book, that uh, there is no uh, lifetime guarantee on any nation. And to get back to the decadence thing uh, mm-hmm. that Sir John mentioned, uh, there's a common denominator. Uh, there's a, a loss of a sense of God. There's, again, military overreach, uncontrolled immigration without assimilation. And a, a focus on self, uh, a, uh, a loss of a sense of right and wrong, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, now, today, if you say you know, anything is wrong, behavior or whatever, you're immediately denounced as being one of many kind of phobes. Mm -hmm. And this keeps a lot of people from speaking out uh, because they don't want to be denounced and criticized. But the national debt, um, nobody's talking. You know, the last time there was any serious addressing... Why uh, do you see the debt as a moral issue? Well, because I, there's, you get pushback from Democrats. Well, of course. Saying, yeah. Yeah, well, of course yeah, they're talking about more government and more programs to addict more people to government. Mm-hmm. Well, but just let's remember when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House. He actually came up with a serious proposal, which everybody knew needed to be done but was afraid to, to talk about, mm-hmm. to reform Social Security and Medicare, the two major drivers of uh, the entitlement programs and, and the debt, which continues to grow. He, uh, he was denounced by the left. Uh, the commercial was created, a political ad (laughs) that showed an actor, you know, a Paul Ryan lookalike, pushing granny in a wheelchair over a cliff. Mm -hmm. That was very funny, but it was not a serious response to what everybody knows must be done. The politicians of both parties continue to kick the can down the road. We need to reform Social Security. Not everybody needs it. It should be means-tested. Jack Kent, the late congressman from uh, Buffalo, uh, argued this years ago. But anybody who touches the president in the State of the Union speech said, we're we're going to guarantee you're going to keep your Social Security. Okay, well, that sounds great. But everybody knows that you cannot continue to spend and spend with more and more people retiring and fewer and fewer people working or the programs are going to be bankrupt. But the politicians don't want to do anything about it. Kick the can down the road. They're afraid they're going to be denounced like Paul Ryan. Yeah. You talk about the loss of a sense of duty. Mm. And it seems to me like these politicians that refuse to take on these issues don't have a sense of duty there. How do you think we could restore that? Well, you know, uh, uh, nobody, uh, younger people, uh, don't serve in the military and uh, don't know anybody who did. Uh, When I was growing up, not only my dad, but many relatives served in the military. I served in the military. Uh, Can I put back on you a little bit there? Just because, you know, my generation, um, I have a lot of friends that voluntarily joined the military after 9-11. Well, good. Yes, good. And, you know, there's millions of people that are in active duty right now without a draft. Right. And so I do feel like... When we talk about millennials and younger generation, they get swept under the rug yeah. because in your generation, people were drafted. They were indeed. And they didn't have a choice. But That's my right. brother is part of the Marine Corps. Good. He went voluntarily, saw people, you know, a lot of loss. And it gets swept under the rug as if yeah. these young kids don't care. And I think a lot of people do. Well, they do. But, I, you know, I'm of a mind that I think everybody ought to do some kind of public service to yeah. serve their country. It could be the military. It might be in private. It could be in addition to the job. But... 
you know, we get a lot of benefits. The, the freedoms we enjoy are not the natural state of humanity. If you look around the world, as I argue in my book, uh, despotism, religious fundamentalism, denial of women's rights, lack of a free press, all of these things seem to be the norm. Yeah. We have to renew, like a library book, if you're old enough to remember library books, and renew them. After I still have a library them. in my town. You, you do. <laughs> do you have a library card, though? My uh, kids do. Oh, my. Well, your kids do, yeah. But they, they have to be renewed in order for you legitimately to continue yeah. the, the borrowing experience. It's the same with the, the values that build and sustained America. I mean, we've been through the Revolutionary War against a superior power, mm-hmm. a civil war, uh, a Great Depression, recessions. Uh, the Vietnam War, and now we're facing uh, perhaps the greatest challenge of all, terrorism, Mm -hmm. and the growth of China and its aggressiveness around the world under the radar for a lot of people. They're building bases in the South China Sea, they're building uh, bases in South America in our back door, Mm -hmm. and uh, nobody's really addressing these things. So these values, uh, we, we can't live off the inertia of previous generations who shared them. And yes, God bless those people who volunteered for the military, not only after 9-11, but, uh, but since then. And for whatever reason, you know, some just volunteer to, be a, to get their tuition paid for, and that's fine. Uh, we're very grateful for them. Well, they don't get it for the benefits, I can yeah. tell you that much. They're not, the VA hasn't been run that well lately. Well, um, But what know. do you think the difference is between the greatest generation and now? Because there is something that's maybe different, and I do think you're right. It goes to a loss of sense of duty, maybe patriotism, shared mm-hmm. values. I, I, I don't know what, but what do you see? And it's probably, maybe it gets back to faith. That's part of it. But I, I think, uh, you know, the whole idea of, of uh, obligation, um, we have an obligation to uh, transfer to our children and grandchildren the virtues and values that we inherited from our grandparents and parents of a certain, if we're of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the World War II generation is gone now. We still honor them in various ways, not only with their own memorial here in Washington, but uh, remember the Super Bowl where uh, several uh, who veterans of World War II were 100 years old, 100 being the, the uh, birthday of the NFL. Nice little connection there. <laughs> uh, but they're fading. And You'll remember, I think, uh, maybe you didn't live through it, you're such a young person, but uh, certainly you studied the history. Uh, Those who came back from Vietnam were spat upon, were, uh, you know, demonstrated against, were treated as uh, murderers and the rest. So Mm -hmm. we we haven't really uh, seen an appreciation of those who have served their country and served it with honor and distinction, you know, duty, honor, country. Those are the three things. We don't teach patriotism anymore. Now they've gotten done away with the Pledge of Allegiance at a lot of the public schools because it might offend other people who've come from other countries. This is America. Excuse mm-hmm. me. You know, if you want to pledge allegiance to your country, then why did you come here? So uh, if you don't teach these values, if you don't, yes, indoctrinate those virtues, which <laughs> has a negative connotation, but in the area of freedom and duty, honor, and country, you have to be taught you mm-hmm. have to be have them inculcated in you. You don't catch them naturally like you catch a virus. <laughs> now, I'm so curious about your thoughts in the current political environment because of your history mm. with faith and mm. politics. Mm. And you were a founding member or a veteran of the moral majority, but you did break with it once you saw or perceived the leadership as being seduced by power. Mm. And it seems like there are a lot of parallels today. There are, and I I learned that uh, uh, virtue and morals do not come from the top down, they come from the bottom up. And that's been true not only in this country, but in virtually every other nation that has been sustained uh, beyond its, you know, birth date. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that uh, 
you know, faith is, uh, is something that can be transferred to others, but it can't be done by the government. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't expect, especially people who do not believe as I do, to accept what I believe based on legislation or a president or an election. Now, I think you can argue in the public square without you know, saying that you're trying to impose uh, biblical values on people. Certain things that are, are common to all humanity, uh, treating others with respect, uh, equality for women, um, um, you know, uh, golden rule, mm-hmm. love other people as you love yourself. That'd be good basic to start with. Pretty good, yeah. <laughs> we could use more of that in Washington. But you asked about, you know, the politics. I mean, I've been, I've been doing my column now for almost 36 years. Congratulations. And, thank you. Uh, it's, twice uh, a week. Twice a week, yeah. Do the math. Mm-hmm. No, not on the spot, a year. sir. <laughs> okay, all right. But uh, things have really uh, changed a lot. Part of it's the 24-7 news cycle. Yeah. But part of it is a polarization that I have not seen since really the Vietnam War. And, and I would argue in some ways it's even worse. Mm. Uh, people don't know each other anymore except by labels. People don't talk to each other. People tune into programs on radio and television that simply reinforce what they already think. And they don't listen to another point of view. And you've always made a point of trying to reach other people. You had a column with Bob Beckel, who yeah. everybody knows from Fox News for yeah. many years, yeah. to try to find common ground. You wrote a book, I think, called Common Ground. Yes. Yeah. And you think that's harder to do now? I think it's harder to do now. I also wrote one after that called uh, uh, What Works. And mm-hmm. my argument was, look, I don't care if it's a liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican program. Let's have an unbiased look at it. If it is producing the results as advertised by its charter or legislation at a reasonable cost and, and can't be done better by the private sector, we keep it. Mm-hmm. And if it's if not, we get rid of it. Now, we do that in business. If you have a sales plan uh, in your business and it's working, great. But if your competition is uh, selling more items than you are and your plan is failing, then you get rid of it or you go out of business. Why can't we do that with government? Hmm. You know, Ronald Reagan had one of the great lines of all time about that. He said, the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program. (laughs) It's easier to kill a vampire than a government program. We can't even reduce the rate of increase in spending, much less actually cut it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, you don't do that in business. And there are, you know, it was, I think uh, there was was a federal tea tasting commission for years before that went out of business. There was a national helium reserve when people thought that dirigibles might be useful in warfare. (laughs) And after the Hindenburg explosion in the 1930s, that, you you should probably the expression, shot that down. (laughs) But uh, this is the problem. You know, once, once a program gets passed, they forget about it. The bureaucracy grows. I did a recent interview with Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. She's trying to cut and cut and cut the federal presence in public education. Bill mm-hmm. Bennett, her predecessor in the Reagan administration, uh, tried to get rid of the Department of Education. He couldn't do it. Congress wouldn't let him do it. You got the mm-hmm. teachers' unions and all this stuff. So uh, I, I, think, I think we need a top-to-bottom uh, look at our government, its purpose, and the, the increasing loss of individual freedom hmm. as government grows. Hmm. I was struck on the topic of Christians in government mm-hmm. and the media. You wrote in a recent column that today evangelicals are perceived by many as one more interest group attached to the Republican Party mm-hmm. and especially President Trump. Mm. As members need to make a choice as to which one is their true master, mm. they can't serve both. Hmm. What made you want to write that? Well, a lot of things. A lot of my evangelical brethren, I think, uh, I mean, I I love President Trump's policies. Uh, I think they're working better than any 
president, Republican or Democrat, we have had in recent years. Mm -hmm. Whether it's unemployment or employment across all demographics, whether uh, it's the stock market, which continues to set records. Do you think that's him or just the fact that there was unified Republican government and maybe business thought some of the pressure was relieved? Well, it's not been unified since he was elected. Yeah, but even in the beginning was started the boom. Well, of course, you know, in the first year or so, the people are still, Democrats were still crediting President Obama. Uh, President's power is limited in some ways, but a lot of it has to do with consumer confidence, mm-hmm. which is yes. also up. But, but you asked a question about the evangelicals and their fealty for President Trump. In terms of issues, whether it's pro-life, religious freedom, Second Amendment, he has been better than any Republican or Democrat president, including the sainted Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. in my memory. Now, do a lot of them like his personality? Do a lot of them like his language? No. But they've been given the choice in 2016 between Hillary Clinton, who was far left liberal in their minds, Mm -hmm. and Trump, who may have been imperfect morally, and aren't we all, but at some level, but who uh, appealed to them on the basis of the policies in which they believe. We're going to have the same choice this year. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so that's the, be- that's the higher kingdom and the eternal kingdom. And all of the rest is just, uh, you know, the rest. And I, I am sympathetic to voters who make that choice. It's a mm-hmm. binary choice, mm-hmm. as many people said, between one and the other. But in Washington, there's a lot of Christian Republicans who have to make a choice about how they can serve a president who forces people to defend really tough things, things that unchristian-like behavior. What advice do you have towards a faithful young person who is asked to serve the president but might be uncomfortable with some of those things? Well, in terms of, uh, you know, Christian-like behavior, I'm not 100% in that area either. We're Mm -hmm. all all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we're all... Uh, pressing on the upward way, as the old Baptist hymn says. Uh, I think you, you know, nobody's perfect. Uh, there are people in Congress that uh, are imperfect people. Bill Clinton certainly had his problems. Lyndon Johnson, Jack Kennedy, it was covered up by the media for all the affairs he was having. But this is uh, the kingdom of this world, and this is how it operates. And you have to look beyond that in some areas mm-hmm. and decide on the policy matters. You know, it, it's, it's too easy to say, well, we're not electing a deacon or an elder in our church. We're electing a president of the United States. Okay. But, and it would be great to have somebody who combines all of these things, like Mike Pence. I mean, I've known mm-hmm. Mike Pence for 30 years. Yeah. He's a serious Christian. He, uh, you know, he was made fun of when he said he wouldn't meet alone with a woman unless his yeah. wife was present. Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of people mocked him. Mm-hmm. But then came the Harvey Weinstein scandal and some of these yeah, other so things. You save yourself a lot of trouble. And all of us, exactly. <laughs> Nobody ever got in trouble for what they didn't do. Well, if we impeach Trump, Mike Pence is right there. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's funny because, uh, well... I, I don't know if I should tell this story or not. Well, I'll tell well, it. You anyway. definitely no, should. I don't should. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the pornographer Larry Flint, who I knew a little bit because of the profession, not because of, I was engaged in any of his activities. Meaning you just knew of him. I knew of him. Yeah. Well, okay. I, well, no, I, you know, I'd met him a couple of times. Oh, really? So I, so Where? I saw him, I saw, well, at Fox, uh, he was on Fox once. He comes in his wheelchair and he says, uh, Cal, I thought you'd be interested in something. I said, what? Now, this was when he was doing background investigations on conservatives and Christians who were hypocritical and out having affairs and doing other things. Uh-huh. While so this preaching was during the Clinton impeachment, guys. right? Yeah. yeah. Was he so, the one that, Bob yeah, Livingston? Yes, okay. that's right. And we offered a million dollars to anybody who could expose mm-hmm. out some of these people. So he says, well, Cal, I thought you'd be interested in something. I said, what's that, Larry? 
He said, we did a background investigation on you. I said, is that right? He said, yeah, we didn't find anything. I said, oh, my goodness, per personally approved by Larry Flint. Uh, I said, well, you know. I guess just, that's a relief. You're looking in the wrong place for my sins, but that's not one of them, fortunately. Good. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on the concept of impeachment, mm. Mitt Romney was a lone Republican mm -hmm. vote. Mm -hmm. And I, I did want to ask you, because you often reference Romans 13.1, which states, there's no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God to argue against things like mm -hmm. impeachment and removal. So if you believe in the scripture as written, does that mean any elected president can do whatever they like? If it's a Barack Obama, <laughs> no. President Trump, Clinton? No. No, well, we have a constitution, and people swear to uphold the constitution, mm -hmm. not the Bible. Now, I, don't, I think there are several areas where they intersect. Otherwise, Jefferson, who was a deist, would not say that all men, meaning the human race, not just males, are created equal, they didn't evolve from slime, and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then in the next clause in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson outlined the purpose of government succinctly, as he always did. He said, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. To secure mm -hmm. what rights? Why the rights that God had endowed? Why is that necessary? Because, as James Madison said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need all these laws. <laughs> now, the, the people who are arguing, well, we need more gun control laws. Tell me a law that lawbreakers will obey, and I'll consider it. But mm -hmm. by their very nature, they're lawbreakers, so they're not going to obey the law. This is an internal thing. You see, where does authority come from? All authority comes from God, even bad leaders. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I'm not God. I can't explain Hitler. I can't explain Stalin. I can't explain Mao. Mm -hmm. But when Jesus stood before Pilate and said in the greatest church-state moment ever, don't you realize I have the power of life and death over you? And he responded, you wouldn't have that power if my father hadn't given it to you. End mm -hmm. of debate. Let's continue this a little bit. If <laughs> President... Trump was installed by God by some way or another. This is God's will. But wait, so is he Obama? trying to teach us a lesson or bless us? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not God. I can't tell you. Yeah. I'll have to ask him. But, you know, a very prominent evangelical leader said in 2016, God showed up. Mm. Well, I wrote in response, well, who showed up when Obama was elected or Clinton yeah, or right. Bush or Bushes? I mean, you can't you can't say that. I mean, God isn't a Republican. He, you know, he puts people... Don't tell some evangelicals that. <laughs> I, look, he puts people in office for his own purposes. If you look at Scripture, mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar, some, who Saddam Hussein patterned himself after. There were a lot of lousy, lousy leaders in mm -hmm. Scripture, in both Old and New Testaments. So you can't argue that only somebody you voted for is God's will, right. because that puts you in the place of him, which is the first sin, by the way. But there are a lot of faith-abiding Republicans mm -hmm. that feel they have to go along with anything Trump does right now. Yes. To that point, Jerry Falwell Jr. was recently asked by the Washington Post, mm -hmm. is there anything President Trump could do that would endanger support from you or other evangelical leaders? He said, no. And the interviewer said, that's the shortest answer I've ever received <laughs> on that question. Well, the president himself said that uh, you know he has such strong evangelical support that he could walk down Fifth Avenue in New York and shoot somebody and still have the support. That, do you think that's because of Trump, though, or because people are so afraid to trust the Democrats? Well, I think it's a combination of things, but, you know, my, uh, my, King David, when he was king over Israel, had the best line ever on this. He said, put not your trust in princes yes. and kings or mortal flesh that cannot save. And he was king, mm -hmm. so basically don't trust him. 
I mean, look, we have leaders. I have my preferences. You have your preferences. Everybody has their preferences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the, the, the thing that bothers me now, among other things, is that, and I saw, somebody made this point uh, the, the other night on television, a member of Congress, I think. It used to be when you had an election, the losing side would go lick its wounds. They'd have meetings. Uh, how do we retool our message? How do we win next time? Mm -hmm. Now it's how do we bring this guy down, this person down? Uh, and they were arguing about impeachment, the Democrats were, even before the election and certainly the day or two after some of the quotes Mm -hmm. uh, from some of the more radical members of Congress. That's not the way to do it. And this poisons the atmosphere. And as people said during this recent uh, impeachment fiasco, impeachment was supposed to be rare. Yeah. And now I fear that when Republicans get back in control of both houses of Congress and there's a Democrat president, uh, they're going to go the same route. And that, that will polarize and poison the political atmosphere even more than it is now, which is bad enough. It seems to me it sort of gets to the concept of forgiveness, starting over with a blank slate. And at the National <laughs> Prayer Breakfast, mm -hmm. um, Arthur Brooks, who everyone knows, a former scholar at AEI, I believe. Yeah, Harvard professor. Yeah, very smart guy. One of the nicest guys, I think. Columnist of the Washington Post. Yes. Yep. He stood up at the podium and said, raise your hand if you love someone no. love someone that you disagree with politically. And most of the audience raised their hand, yes. but President Trump didn't. I know. I am writing a column about it called uh -huh. A Missed Opportunity. The thing about reconciliation is that the real power comes from the person who feels that he or she has been offended. To extend forgiveness to the person who is guilty of the offense is, as Jesus said, heaping coals of fire upon their heads. Now, if the president really wanted to harm <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, he, it was a perfect opportunity. Mm. Brooks' speech was brilliant. It was wonderful. And the president didn't even go down. Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, was sitting at the other end of the table. If he had gone down and just shook her hand, there would have been tears. There would have been, that would have been one of the greatest symbols mm. of reconciliation and forgiveness. And Arthur Brooks also said during his talk before the president got up, he said, look, if you can't really do it out of your heart, fake it. Yeah. Now, who is better at faking it, the reality TV star than Donald Trump, right? But this is, I mean, Jesus set the example when he was on the cross. He was unfairly tried. He was unfairly arrested. He was unfairly convicted. And he was unfairly crucified. And yet, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. That is the ultimate reconciling statement. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, it's not about the president agreeing with Nancy Pelosi. It's not about him, I think, rightly feeling that he was wronged by these articles of impeachment. It was the last step after the Mueller report, charges of racism, all of these other things that had been thrown at him mm. uh, that didn't stick. And so then they tried the impeachment route. Uh, I think he could perform a great healing act had he gone down. What would it cost him? Nothing. Well, gone what down if they hold people back from extending that grace to others in this political moment? On both sides. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's all about the quest for power. Mm. But it's not real power. God offers power, his power. He has the only power to change a life and to change direction of nations. And I think, you know, the fundraisers, the, yeah. um, I've seen some of this from the inside. You tell a great story about when you were at the Royal Majority. Oh, my. And you were asked, why 
Is everything always so apocalyptic? Why can't we ever say we're doing a good job? Can you tell us what you learned well, from that? Well, I asked a, a prominent pastor, not associated with the uh, with, uh, moral majority. I said, why don't you ever send out a positive letter mm-hmm. on what you're doing with people's contributions? Yeah. And he said, you can't raise money on a positive. Now, how cynical is that? So if you say things are going great, thanks for your contributions, you've really made a difference, they're not going to send any more money. But if you say, you know, the world's going to pot, uh, you know, the president is terrible, uh, whatever, send me 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, you're more likely. Now, that is cynical manipulation. I don't yeah. care who's doing it. And the left does the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and some of them use the same fundraisers. <laughs> they really do. They work both sides of the streets like a cheap hooker. Uh, and as long as the check's clear, who cares? And, and it contributes to the cynicism, the polarization, and the anger. I mean, we are not each other's enemies, as Lincoln said. Hmm. If we don't make this great experiment called democracy or a constitutional republic work for succeeding de- generations, as I argue in my book, mm-hmm. we're going to expire. There is no guarantee. Things are looking great. But when things are looking great, it's time to shore up the foundations. The psalmist wrote, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I think our foundations are being destroyed at several levels, as I argue. So who are the right people to lead the country to the way back? Well, to be I, more but I'm not running. But, uh, no, no. <laughs> uh, it, it, again, it's not, it's not the person. It's, it's bubble up. It's not trickle down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there has to be like... Where have those efforts failed in the past? Just because you have so much experience with this and the parallels are so strong today. Well, you can't change a heart through legislation. Yeah. Now, somebody will argue, well, what about civil rights? Okay, what about civil rights? There was huge resistance to Brown versus Board of Education, mm-hmm. integration of schools. Uh, there was opposition to interracial marriage, and not just from the South, but other parts of the country. But slowly, 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 over the years, when, the, when that generation that was so racist and bigoted mm-hmm. finally died out, and rep- was replaced by another more broad-minded, more biblically-oriented, I would argue, hmm. generation, those things begin to change. So, so law can be good and they can shape, but law cannot force me to love my wife or to mm-hmm. be a good father to my children or an example or a role model to my peers. Mm-hmm. That's my responsibility, and I have that ultimate responsibility bef- to God before whom I shall stand and give an account of my life. No legislation can force me to be righteous, to be good, to be a good husband and father, to be committed, not to commit adultery, and Mm -hmm. uh, to do these other things. That comes from the heart, and only God can reach that. No legislation and no president can. Although it seems like there's not a lot of legislation moving these days, but President Trump, in trying to reach out to evangelicals and promote those values, looks to people who are really controversial like Paula White, who you've written about, who preaches the prosperity gospel. And I think it'd be useful for you to point out your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, this is not something new. Mm -hmm. During the Nixon administration, Charles Colson, who was one of the top aides to President Nixon. He did some time, didn't he? He did some time at Watergate, yes, but but wrote this wonderful book called Born Again. Well, after he got out of prison, he did a prison fellowship. Even Bob Woodward, uh, uh, who was pretty cynical about all of this, Mm-hmm. Uh, acknowledged that Colson was a change man. But he said in his pre-conversion days that evangelicals were the easiest to manipulate. Mm. They'd bring him in, they'd have a picture of President Nixon, all of a sudden, 
Nixon could do no wrong. And they were manipulating them. Yes, that's, that's the seduction. I would, I would suggest that power or the sense of power in Washington, D.C. is a greater seduction than sex. It's, mm. it, it's, it's more powerful. It is more subtle. It's unseen. I mean, if you're having an affair with somebody, you can see them, right? But, but the whole power thing... I don't want to. Well, no, I'm not asking for an answer. I'm just... It's rhetorical. It's rhetorical. Thank you, yes. Uh, but but it, it really is seductive. I mean, mm-hmm. Kissinger talked about this some years ago, Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State. The power is a very, very subtle and seductive thing. And it's not really power at all. If it were, would things not have changed by now? Yeah. And all of the things that the, the, the presidential candidates, especially the Democrats, are talking about, education and, and employment... Which which is great, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't all of that have changed by now? Mm. I mean, they've spent all this money. They had all this time to fix it. They've had Democrat presidents with Democrat Congresses. And how come things aren't better? Yeah. How come they don't ever improve? Because that's not where the real answer is. It's in the heart where only God can reach. It seems like we Republicans and evangelicals risk a backlash for not doing the most good when they can, when they have the power. And I worry that's what's happened to the church. Mm. Because, you know, Catholic mm-hmm. church corruption, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. people seeking to make money for their church rather than providing for the poor. And also young people looking at Republicans in power right now who aren't moving the ball on entitlements, growth of government, military expansion, what have you. And so when we're told when everything is so nationalized in our system and everybody looks to Washington for answers, how do we get them to look inward? Well, my standard uh, opening line of the lecture circuit is, I'm happy to be here tonight from Washington, D.C., where the only politicians with convictions are in prison. Always gets a laugh, bipartisan, right? <laughs> I always just steal that one. Yeah, thank you. Although hopefully not too many more. Well, you know how that works. As <laughs> Cal Thomas always says, and the second time you use it, as a friend of mine says, third time, as I always say, right? That's the way it works in this town. Uh, I, I, th- I think, once again, when you go back to uh, the, the seduction of power, mm-hmm. and conservatives are as guilty of this as liberals, but in another area. They want smaller government, and yet they're constantly looking to government to yeah. change things. You can't have it both ways. I mean, mm-hmm. government was designed to be limited by the founders so that the people would be unlimited in their pursuit of happiness, however they define it. But now it's reversed, and too many Republicans seem to be just as happy to manage the growth of government. You look at the Ways and Means Committee, you look at the Appropriations Committee, uh, the only bipartisan thing that happens in this town anymore is spending. Mm -hmm. That's how you can get Republicans and Democrats together is to spend money. Send Send it back to a base or for an airplane that the military doesn't want or that's been outmoded. You know, one of the great inventions was the, was the base, base realignment and closing commission, BRAC, mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. Which, which drove Effective. politicians crazy because they were closing down bases that were of World War II vintage and mm-hmm. hadn't been used in years. But, you know, it brought money into the district, but it worked. And I think that was, we need another one of those. We need a top to bottom look at every single government program and we eliminate the ones that don't work and we keep the ones that are. I think that would save a ton of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess we've talked a lot about people who do it wrong, but what, who do you think is doing it right? Is there anybody that somebody could look down at? I know it has to start from the bottom up. Mm. But young people need someone to look towards. Who has done it right? In all of in your time observing politics and writing columns, certainly there are some rays of hope. Well, I mean, growing up, my parents were my role model. They stuck mm-hmm. together. I didn't know anybody who was divorced. Um, 
on my, you know, in my neighborhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Washington area, in suburban mm -hmm. uh, Maryland mm -hmm. and uh, northern Virginia. And I uh, went to school here, uh, graduated from American University. And, but things started to change in the 60s. Um, you had the Hugh Hefner playboy philosophy, which told men they didn't have to wait until they were in a committed relationship with a wife to have sex. And then the uh, rebellion against that attitude by Helen Gurley Brown of Cosmo magazine, who said, nice girls go to heaven, bad girls go everywhere, uh, that kind of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, women were upset and still are today that men can't make commitments, they can't trust them. And uh, men don't feel any obligation to stick in a marriage. Uh, it's it's awful. I mean, and this is the crumbling of society. And it gets and back. It is pretty clear. You think marriage is a key building block for society? I do. Any any family is the foundation of any culture or society. Mm -hmm. If you don't if you don't have strong families, if you don't have a reason for coming home uh, from work at night, and and uh, it's the okay man philosophy, going out and slaughter dinner. So, uh, you know, so you can cook it over the open fire and that kind of well, thing. I'm glad I don't have to cook, <laughs> yeah. bleed out the cow and yeah. cook it for dinner. Yeah. But, yeah, well, but, I'll take the hamburger at the store, yeah. but I get you. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, or, the, uh, or the frozen uh, dinner, yeah. But, yeah and th those things change. But look, the foundation of any society, of any culture, is, is a strong family. And mm -hmm. again, um, no one can force me to be faithful to my wife. Nobody can force. But if I am faithful and if I don't commit adultery, and if I am honest in my business dealings, that's going to have... You save yourself a, a lot of problems. Well, not only you save yourself <laughs> a lot of problems, but you influence others. Mm -hmm. People say, you know, why are you the way you are? I say, well, you know, I'm not any great example, but here, if you see any good in me, it is God reproducing himself in me. And Well, tell me more, okay. So I, I think, uh, you know, when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and you see all of the prophecies in both Old and New Testaments, and Daniel and Revelation especially, and then in, in the Gospels, uh, that everything is winding down to the final act. Mm. And uh, depending on whose side you're on determines whether you're going to spend eternity and who you're going to spend it with. But uh, this is, again, history is so important. I argue in the book that the closest we get to history these days is the instant replay in sports. Uh, people don't know what happened a generation ago. You mm -hmm. talked to, you know, when I was growing up and I started out in the news business, I wanted to know a lot about who went before. I talked to a lot of these older guys who were, and they were mostly men then, the women came later, who were correspondents during World War II, who remembered a lot of stuff. I, it was instant history for me. And I wanted them to pour their lives into me. And I was a young kid, 18, 19, 20 years old at NBC here in Washington as a copy boy. Mm -hmm. And these were, these were my heroes. I have their pictures hanging on my wall at home, all of them. And uh, they wouldn't be known to today's generation, probably. But uh, uh, who do we have like that who are, as you say, role models in our lives? Not sports figures, certainly. Yeah. Uh, certainly not politicians. But who's out there? Clergy? Well, maybe some. But as you suggest, a lot of them are compromised by uh, the unbroken fealty to this president or another Republican president. And, and, and the left does the same thing. They have their favorites. They excuse Bill Clinton. I mean, they're, you know, it's, well, it's just sex. That's between him and his wife. I mean, you go back and look at James Carville and some of these others who just poo-pooed the whole thing. So this is not unique to President Trump. This has been right. going on for a long time. <laughs> you go through all these empires, the rise and fall, some of them great, some of mm. them flawed. Which decline scares you the most? Hmm. Well, let's see. I, I have to say Rome, because yeah. the Romans had uh, this uh, version of Las Vegas they went to, and it wasn't just Nero. It was a whole bunch of them. They'd go out and have, you know, uh, sex with whomever in the baths and all that stuff. And uh, they really thought they had it all. They were so full of themselves. Uh, 
but the military overreach and the decadence uh, that uh, that that characterized uh, the fall. I mean, you know, Edward Gibbon wrote the classic on this rise mm-hmm. and fall of the Roman Empire. No, but and I, I say I don't presume to do any better, but I, I you know add a few things, and uh, I think I think that is the greatest danger of all: a society that turns in on itself and begins to undercut the basic values that help build it and sustain it through wars, depression, recessions, uh, terrorism, all of these other things, is committing suicide. Mm. And again, I'll repeat myself, but these values have to be renewed by every generation and sometimes within generations, or they evaporate. And I fear that we're in danger of that right now, and that's why I wrote the book. Mm. So let's say you are President Thomas, and you get one <laughs> executive order. I mean, there's a lot of problems that you tell, whether it's you know illegal immigration, military mm. overexpansion, the debt. Which one thing could we change to get the fastest results? Well, I don't think you can do it by executive order because you've got a lot of these well, Supreme Court decisions. Well, this is pretend. Decisions. I made you yeah, president yeah, for a day. Well, <laughs> you know, the, fa- yeah, the, pr- the founders knew what they were doing when they yep. had these dif- diffusion of powers. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, what the president has done on, uh, on, on immigration and shifting funds to help build the wall. All those do you think we're going to get the wall? Well, I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, some of it's being built, but I noticed the other day that the wind came along and blew along and blew over a section of it. That didn't build a lot of confidence, it does it? No. <laughs> no. But, but, but the illegal immigration is down substantially. And mm-hmm. he, he has done through executive order and through jawboning uh, to Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, he has actually gotten those governments to uh, stand mm-hmm. up and stem the flow. And uh, to, to him goes great credit for that. So I think there's a lot like that that you could do uh, through executive order. But things like abortion, the value of human life, um, you're going to have to change the courts. And then after, what is but it? But when we talk about changing things through legislation, because, you know, I think about the abortion question a lot. Mm. And could we actually change people's minds through the government on that question? Because before we had the morning after pill yeah. and all that, people had hangers. Yeah. And it was, it's well, me. I mean, I'm just, yeah, as I a woman, I, I have to mean. think that. This is a personal problem. You have to talk with people directly. Exactly, and they are. The the, the thousands of pregnancy help centers that have cropped up since Roe versus Wade, I've spoken at many of them, raised millions of Mm. dollars for them, heard the stories of women who have had abortions and said, if I had only known the following, or if I'd seen a picture at Planned Parenthood, they turn the monitor around during the uh, ultrasound Mm -hmm. so the woman doesn't see the uh, the gestation yeah, stage of the baby. And that's the case baby. where science has yeah. come around to the side and, of. And 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 this is this is uh, showing progress. The abortion rate is down substantially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have suggested that uh, legislatures all all should pass full disclosure acts. We take the left's view uh, that. Uh, uh, I haven't heard of that. Against, What's full disclosure? Uh, well, man? that before an abortion occurs, a woman has to know about her alternatives, including uh, mm-hmm. adoption. Uh, she has to see a sonogram. Of, of her baby. This changes. The polls have shown around 90% of abortion-minded women who see a picture of their own baby and hear about alternatives choose life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great tool. So I'm for empowering women. I'm for empowering mm-hmm. them to give them more information. Yeah. No, the I left guess it's a, just a question in terms of like strategy and reading your book and you talking about bottom-up solutions for yeah. these moral problems. Yes. It did make me wonder if evangelicals are wrong to put so much emphasis on overturning Roe v. Wade when those kinds of efforts seem far more effective. Yeah, well, they are. And I don't think it's either or. And there will still be states like New York and California and Vermont 
and uh, some others who will uh, and have already, uh, here's Cuomo of New York, you know, who signed this legislation, was probably the most liberal uh, abortion legislation ever, I mean, right up to the moment of live birth. Now, the president, during his State of the Union address, introduced this a woman and her child who was born, I think, what, 21 weeks and a few days, the earliest premature baby that's, that's ever survived, and yet... Uh, if her mother wanted to abort her at 21 weeks or 22 weeks or 30 weeks or the moment of delivery, mm-hmm. under current law, she would be perfectly free to do so. Is that the kind of power we should give individuals? What about the man? What about the husband? He has no say, mm-hmm. zero, even though he may be loving, even though he may be willing to do anything, including put the child yeah. up for adoption. You know, I had a he debate no with rights. a liberal friend of mine yeah. who said, well, you know, if we really wanted to get it, stick it to the men, we should make them pay child support the moment there's a preg- positive pregnancy test. Well, and I said, that's great. Yeah. Why not? Aren't they already? <laughs> I mean, you know, the doctor, uh, you know, the ice cream and pickles at midnight or whatever. Oh, no, I didn't. You didn't do that? I, I think uh, hospitals have cut back since I had my kids. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but certainly all these problems have existed for quite a long time. Yes. And you say the thing that will save us is revival of American spirit. Mm-hmm. And revivals have saved us from abyss in the past. Mm-hmm. So, what would that look like? Well, a couple of things. There are two kinds of revivals. There's the spiritual one that comes only from God. And if you look at the revival of 1857, it began with what uh, the religious historian J. Edward Orr called a concert of prayer. Mm-hmm. Two men got together on their lunch hour in Wall Street and began to pray once a week for revival. And then they decided the problems of America, as we were being torn apart, in 1857 with the Civil War to follow just a few years later, that they needed to meet every day for prayer. And then the group got so big that they couldn't fit them all in the Dutch consistory building in Manhattan, lower Manhattan, so they moved to the churches at night and invited their spouses and kids. And at the height of the revival, which exploded, 10,000 people a week in New York City alone were being converted. When it got down the Appalachians to West Virginia in the middle of winter, they cut holes in the ice to baptize people in the middle of winter, prompting, Was one, that necessary? prompting one commentator, you got to let me hit the punchline <laughs> here, prompting one commentator to say, when Baptists are that on fire, you know that, well, I, I blew the punchline now because you interrupted me. No, when Baptists do that, you know they're really on fire. Anyway, Put forget it. Put the fire up. Mess it up, yeah. Anyway, so, so that's, you know, that's, that's where real change comes from, the spiritual level. Now, on the political, economic level, uh, that comes from people just decide to live differently. And, and you have to you look at our public schools now. A lot of schools no longer are allowing and, in fact, uh, outlawing the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. We did that every day in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is America. But they don't want to offend immigrants. Well, you know, this is the United States. I think mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that people think Mexico is better then let them go back to Mexico and pledge allegiance to the Mexican flag. Previous immigrants have been assimilated, not hyphenated. Yeah, well, sometimes it's, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's all immigrants that are opposed to making this push. No, a lot of time it's yeah. elite liberal teachers yeah, yeah. who want to be inclusive and think that somehow the Pledge of Allegiance, and this isn't a widespread problem. No. I don't want to overplay well, it. No, but what does inclusive mean? It seems that, you know, the older I get, mm-hmm. uh, inclusive means everything except what I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to tolerate everything except what I'm intolerant of. We have to believe in anything except what I believe. Mm -hmm. So I find that some of my liberal, secular, progressive friends who talk a great game about diversity and I love the word diversity. They never they never talk about ideological diversity. Mm -hmm. They talk, but you know, a liberal is a liberal is a liberal. 
whether it's male or female, African-American, Hispanic, Latino, whatever. It's not about what you look like on the outside. Mm -hmm. It's about your thinking process on the inside. And so real diversity would mean people of different political points of view and backgrounds. But you don't see that increasingly at our universities. Universities, when I was growing up, we, we, we tolerated all kinds of speech. We wanted to hear mm-hmm. opinions that were different from ours. Now you have conservative speakers, if they're invited at all, shouted down or, or demonstrated against at universities. Mm-hmm. Do you think widely, though, conservatives are really being discriminated against? Because you look at the success of Fox News in a... Sp- most watched cable station yeah, but ever. It's two, three million people at yeah, a but time. I'm saying, but some of the most influential voices are conservatives. Well, it depends on what you mean by influential. Look, I'm, Rush Limbaugh. Well, yeah, but you know, okay, Rush. God bless him. I hope he survives this physical challenge. I, I, I will say, um, we should talk about Rush for a minute. He wrote a forward to one of your books. Yes, he did. And in light, he was recently diagnosed with yes. advanced lung cancer. Yes. Um, a wonderful a man. A, you know, people, uh, people that don't know him don't really understand him. He really is. And now you're going to laugh, but he really is a humble man. If you listen to him at Christmas or listen to him last week. <laughs> the golden microphone. No, nah, it's yeah, the golden God, idea. The talent on loan from yeah, God. I know. It's, look, it's part showbiz, <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and you use the humor. I mean, I use humor, mm-hmm. you know, but you use the humor to, to communicate. You have to be smart to be funny, too. Yes, well, thank you. Uh, but but he, he uses the humor to make a larger point. But here's the thing. This is what I argue in the book. People now tune in mostly only to those programs that reinforce what they already think. They don't listen to other points of view. I would much rather win an argument by discussing the virtues and, and, and fallacies of a particular program or proposal than I would just to tune into programs. I listen to Rush, I listen to Hannity, I listen, but I also listen to others. Uh, then I would just... Uh, you know, winning an election, mm-hmm. because that doesn't change any mind. I want to win the issue, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's what we're not focusing on. Much better to win the issue than just to win the election because you don't persuade the other side then. Yeah. And to that point, you have, throughout your career, from what I've been able to understand, always fought to have your view included in the mainstream pages, mm-hmm. in the mainstream media, not being regulated as a Christian conservative yeah. on the back page or, you know, in the crazy aisle at the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not always predictable, and uh, I think that helps a lot. But, but why is that important for conservatives to do? Because it's very easy to be typecast, to be yeah. put in a box, and you've resisted it. Well, the editors have been very good to me. I joined some of their organizations. I met them in person I, when I used to do a lot more speaking engagements than I do now because I deliberately cut back. Uh, I would go and meet with the editor and uh, the mm-hmm. local newspaper, and most of them would say, you know, you're the first columnist ever to meet with me. And then I would go out at night and uh, speak to a group, and I'd say, how many people subscribe to your local paper? Usually fewer than half, sometimes only a third. I'd say, okay, well, shout out the reason. Why don't you? Well, I never see my views represented, or uh, they always stereotype what I believe. i said, okay, well, how many would subscribe to your paper if I was in it? Mm-hmm. Every hand goes up. I said, okay. Tomorrow? And you were syndicated in Over thousands? 300. No, yeah. not, no. Okay. Well, it used to be over 500, but, you know, the newspaper industry is right. in trouble. So <laughs> it's about 300 now. I said, I want you to call the publisher tomorrow, not the editor. I want you to call the publisher because the publisher controls the purse strings, right? Yeah, that's and true. you say, if you take Thomas, I'm going to subscribe to your paper. So I didn't appeal to them on the basis of diversity. I appealed to them on the basis of money. 
and a sense of humor. A, a capitalist. A capitalist. A conservative. That's right. No you, want, you want to boost subscriptions? Take me. You know, you got to get this demographic you've ignored or stereotyped. You but may you, not agree with them, but you're going to get their subscriptions. Mm-hmm. But you don't, well, there's a temptation for a lot of young writers these days to do the hot takes. But you always have a really interesting point. You know, you have some scripture in there. You have a unique view. How do you always stay so consistently interesting oh, week aren't after you week? Sweet. No, My I mean, goodness. but it's true. You can go through the archive; it's all very timely. But people today want to have the hottest take, be yeah. the most controversial, and it's very hard to be reliable and consistent. Well, I think one of the problems in journalism today, and I've made this point before, if you look, especially at the New York Times and Washington Post, which are kind of the Bible of political Washington, mm-hmm. they're so predictable now. Uh, I mean, I grew up with the Washington Post and the, and the Washington Daily News, and they, you know, they had more newspapers here. But you, you almost you don't have to read them anymore because every article, every editorial, every columnist, with mm-hmm. the exception of Mark Thiessen the, in the Washington Post, are all anti-Trump. They're all thinking up new ways to denounce Trump. But you have complaints about Trump, too, sometimes. Well, yeah, I have complaints about all politicians, but mm-hmm. that's okay. And, and not to be... Uh, when do you think people fall over the edge? And just become totally uh, anti-Trump, have, not going to listen to him. When they have blanket faith, and then it becomes almost cult-like. Mm. Uh, you know, my, my guy can do no wrong. That's not good for the person. They need to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. And if, if, they, if they do wrong, somebody needs to say it. Now, that doesn't mean you're being judgmental. It just said, look, you're not living up to the standard that you professed or that you're not living up to the standard that we expect of you. That's okay. You can still vote for them. You can still approve their policies, but you shouldn't just give blanket absolution to, uh, you know, and the president uses a lot of bad language. I mean, he takes God's name in vain, which is one of the commandments not to do. Um, he, he makes, you know, all kinds of references that would be anathema to especially evangelicals if somebody did it in their church, especially from the pulpit. But there's always a danger in this. Again, this is the great seduction of politics. And I don't mm-hmm. care if it's a Republican or Democrat. Both sides have done it. I mean, I knew people who I, I talked to a guy I'd known for years who was one of Bill Clinton's spiritual advisors. I hate that phrase. And... Uh, I said, hey, uh, you remember when you said that uh, some of us were getting too close to Reagan, you know? He said, yeah, this is different. I said, really? How is that? And I couldn't really say. Uh, so, you know, I think we need to keep our eyes, those we, those of us who are followers of Jesus of Nazareth, on the prize, on the person, and not to put our trust in princes and kings, again, as King David warned against. And what is the prize? Well, well the, prize, the ultimate prize is eternal life, but uh, the, the, the short-term prize is to really have an influence on other people. As Arthur Brooks said at the National Prayer Breakfast this year, you know, loving your enemies is one of the most powerful things that anyone can do. When, you, when an average unbeliever looks at the Christian community as if there was such a thing, is the first thing they recognize loving their enemies, praying for those who persecute them, caring for widows and orphans? Those were instructions of, from Jesus himself. And those people who claim to be followers of him and to believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible uh, don't, it doesn't immediately come to other people's mind or my mind that they're exactly following the precepts and commands of the one they are following. So I think, you know, if you really want to have influence, I mean, you look at the time in both, both Testaments, where does the power of God come from? Does it come through political leadership? No. 
Widow's might, mustard seed, last place at the table. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Humble, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time if you faint not. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Mouth up with wings as eagles. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. So over and over again, because we're stupid and we don't listen, he repeats himself. <laughs> if you want my power, you've got to do it my way. Jesus said he would be a leader among you, must be your servant first washing of feet, all of these things. Humility gets God's attention. Mm. Where do you see humility in Washington? Maybe only in the dictionary. And I haven't checked that out recently. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, humble yourself. Love your enemies. I can't think of some better messages to end on. So we'll end there. Thank you so much. The book is America's Expiration Date. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. You can find all current Afterwards episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.